Okay, we're back with uh, Paleo Cyborg Podcast, the Bigger Questions Addiction with Forrest Rice of Forrest and AI on Twitter, a AI artist and director. So welcome to the show, Forrest. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for inviting me. Great. Uh, for those not familiar with your work, hopefully they can check out the preview really quick and look at some of your work you want to summarize what you do Mark? uh well i mean i have a background in traditional independent filmmaking i mean i've only made short movies um i adapted three different franz kafka stories um, one of them was a stop motion production called the burrow the other two in the penal colony and the judgment um and like I'm one of those artists that suffers from like a, the what um, Yosha Bach, the AI researcher, he calls like a, a dysfunction. He says an artist, you know, falls in love with the shape of the loss function. <laughs> and because of that, they're not, you know, producing artifacts as a means to a rational end. I think the way he said it is like a normal person makes things to eat. An artist eats to make things. And uh, as a consequence of that, I <laughs> was actually in a position kind of similar to Kafka, like, you know, working a job I hated all day and then at night working on art. And um, Yeah, uh, so I had a background in traditional independent filmmaking. Now I do uh, AI filmmaking. And uh, it's actually much, much nicer. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I look forward to uh, the improvement of the tools as they become more and more sophisticated because now it seems that uh, someone like me that maybe makes things that doesn't have a particularly large audience or a lot of marquee value, I can actually get something done. I can probably at one point create a feature film for just the cost of electricity and a few apps, most likely at one point. Yes. Well, your stuff is pretty popular. It just needs the correct distribution. As you know, by uh, the people who have stolen your work and uh, <laughs> yes, been muted. Yes, if, if it's uh, which is hilarious to see um, accounts on Twitter with larger followings than mine stealing my work. I, I that was a very humbling experience. <laughs> it would be fine if they just linked it to the your YouTube, and then you would get all the credit. Yeah. It would be, it would be nice, but uh, I mean, some of them are just they would re-edit them and change them into something a little bit different. Um, and yeah, but it just, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. I also, uh, there's just something about the YouTube algorithm that recently, like my channel was growing, um, pretty, you know, rapidly for, I mean, for relatively speaking for where I was at and then suddenly it plummeted recently. And that seemed to coincide after those, uh, regulations were passed in Europe. Um, Oh, okay. I, I don't know if there's a connection to that. I just noticed it happened to coincide with that. And I know that YouTube is cracking down on AI content more. And I have a suspicion that they kind of lumped my channel in with all the grifters and disinformation people. <laughs> just like, you know, so hopefully whatever shadow ban is going on is lifted. But there was definitely an enormous drop in subscribers and views and things like that. Yeah, you're you definitely display that your AI just from the start. That's, that's the thing. I, th I wanted to get ahead of uh, these regulations. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be very upfront about this. Yeah. So I don't know how I ended up coming across you on Twitter. I think it had something to do with maybe Wittgenstein. Uh, uh, very philosophical about that. So we, we probably, uh, we probably follow a lot of the same nerds on Twitter yeah. most likically. Uh, Vickenstein. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny. I remember, uh, yeah, I remember the first interactions I had with you. It was like, uh, oh, here's someone that actually understands what Vickenstein's talking about <laughs> for once. I think I think that I remember that there was like a, a meme or something you posted and it was like a very insightful um, take on Vickenstein, which was rare to come across. Yeah, I'm actually not a huge fan of Wittgenstein, but I like to think I understand him better than most people. <laughs> I think you do. <laughs> I think if anything, like the sort of the sort of insight I've had that's sort of original on Wittgenstein, I really haven't heard before is the idea that like Wittgenstein sort of 
came across his brain's own linguistic autocomplete algorithm <laughs> and like that that's what he was actually fighting and wrestling with and he didn't have you know the technical term for that or llms to have as a way to think about it but when you really get down to it it's that's kind of what's going on when you're sort of in the realm of just sort of pure symbols that aren't grounded in some kind of meaning uh it's kind of like the same thing that happens with an llm when it's speaking very sophisticated nonsense yeah i just posted something about how it was a steve Carell in the office he says i don't even know the next word that i'm going to speak when i start a sentence and that's that's how llms are now <laughs> yeah well i think uh you know it's it's one of my you know friends was a philosophy major and we used to get on into these arguments all the time and um and i think like the thing that pisses off a lot of philosophers with wittgenstein is the deeper you get into his work the more you kind of realize how he thought that like the vast majority of metaphysical statements are just like complete gibberish and that's of course very offensive to people who have taught thought about these things very deeply <laughs> um but you know, I, I guess it gets it comes down to like even something like uh, sort of like the the halting problem, even with Alan Turing, right? Like the halting machine doesn't really exist; it's a logical impossibility, and yet we sort of talk about it theoretically as if it can exist. But I think the sort of Wittgensteinian twist on that kind of thing is, you know, were we ever actually talking about anything to begin with? <laughs> and yeah. And some people will say, well, yeah, of course, it's, you know, we're talking about machine age and machine age is, you know, it, either you feed it a program and it tells you whether uh, it'll halt or not. And that's, that's totally reasonable. Right. And then later you have the extension machine and feed it itself and it comes out with a contradiction. And then you say, well, well, yeah, there's a contradiction. So therefore the halting machine can't exist. But I think Wittgenstein goes a step further and says something like, no, like these words that you have, they're these symbols like halting machine. It's just like a complete, you're like you're not talking about anything <laughs> at all, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's like the sort of like deeper uh, thing that Wittgenstein goes into that I think a lot of philosophers don't, they don't quite catch. They don't catch their own autocomplete algorithm running <laughs> and seeing how it's just symbols that they're manipulating and that's it. Yeah, well, he definitely crosses over a little bit with software and uh, symbolism and using tokens and things like that for reprogramming yourself. Yeah, I think the Yoshi Bach once said it that he was sort of an early coder <laughs> before computer code was a thing with his yeah. like the sort of things he did with logical atomism and the Tractatus and all that, which is interesting to think about. Yes, and then he affected uh, the. Uh, whole logical positivism school and the functionalism yeah it's kind of funny though because he was very against the log logical positivists <laughs> I, yeah there, there were stories about like they would invite him to their meetings i think and uh he would go up and just read poetry <laughs> as a way to like uh yeah he felt that they uh had sort of twisted his work i think he, he kind of felt if you read um the duty of genius by ray monk he writes a bunch of letters to um, his friends, publishers, colleagues, and saying how like nobody <laughs> understood the Tractatus, you know. <laughs> well, that's not always a good thing. It's kind of like James Joyce saying nobody. The people are going to study Ulysses for a hundred years, <laughs> which I, they did, and they seem to have stopped after one hundred years, realizing that there was. <laughs> <laughs> There's still Joyce scholars that you know have not read Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> or can, cannot comprehend it so they can definitely uh they should produce a finnegan's wake llm that just talks that way oh that's an interesting idea i mean i guess you could you can just feed sure. chat, slowly feed chat gpt all day <laughs> i guess um we can keep going with which can say fuck later yeah, sure. No, yeah, that's, I can keep going on about that. That's <laughs> we can talk about many things. I want to hear you defend and explain why AI art is actually real art because I hear a lot of arguments on the other side that it doesn't connect with human beings and that it's not created by human beings, so it just doesn't doesn't feel right. 
I wonder if you have, what's your feeling on the uncanny valley and things like that. Yeah, this is a very nuanced topic because on the one hand, if somebody just writes a quick, like a quick prompt and then it outputs this amazing image and then they say, this is my art, that's very misleading and that's, you know, that that's total garbage. Um, however, you know, on the other hand, when it comes to what I do, for example, as a movie director, what I'm doing is not that different than what I would do before. Um, like, a, I think Stanley Kubrick once described the movie director as like a taste machine or a uh, sensibility and taste machine, something like that, which is that you have all these sort of instruments at your disposal. And then it's up to you as a director and your tastes and sensibilities to put them together in a certain, or to use them and put them all together in a certain configuration. And uh, so like, it, like when Steven Spielberg hires a screenwriter to write a screenplay and will collaborate with that screenwriter and give them feedback and give them ideas, it's not that fundamentally different from what you know I might do with an LLM or if I have, if I work with a concept artist and explain what I want uh, it's not that much different than prompting mid-journey, for example, right? So uh, as a director, it's not fundamentally different. And, you know, no one would argue that a director is not a true artist. So I think with this AI stuff, what it's what it is, is like you can either be a poser or a director, I guess. <laughs> it's the way that, to think about it, I would suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Steve Jobs said that when somebody asked him, he, he doesn't code, he doesn't do lots of things. And then they asked him, what does he do? And he says he plays the orchestra. <laughs> he doesn't play an instrument, he plays the orchestra. Right, like he's the conductor. You know? Yeah, he's the guy who brings it all together. Yeah, right, exactly. And so and it's funny because like... Uh, you know, maybe I should do a lot of behind the scenes stuff about what I do. Cause a lot of work goes into it, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it's much quicker, you know, like that stop motion video that I did the burrow that took three years to make, but that was, <laughs> that was total madness. But, um, you know, I can make something that looks, you know, the same sort of production value like now in a week, but even though it's a lot of less sort of manual labor, it's just, you know, it, it still is work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because uh, Stanley Kubrick was famous for having one of his actors become his biggest fan. You know, uh, Leon Vitelli? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm basically a, like an amateur Kubrick scholar. So, yes, I do know Leon Vitelli. Yes. Yes. Did you see that documentary? Film Worker. Yes. Film, film Worker is what it's called. It's a great documentary. Yeah. It's actually, this is what a Kubrick nerd I am actually is uh, when the Clockwork Orange 4K came out, um, I noticed that the audio was fucked up. <laughs> and <laughs> so, and I was very disappointed by that because like, you know, Liam Vitale had, um, he had, you know, overseen all of Kubrick's like video transfers and DVD transfers and Blu-ray transfers. No, not the Blu-ray transfers, I think. Those ones were not done by him. But he oversaw the 2001 4K and that was you know, very well put together and the shining, which is um, excellent too. And then I know he did the 4k video transfer for a clockwork orange, which is like flawless, but the audio he didn't do. And I found that out actually emailing the Kubrick estate. And they said that like he had no longer been um, working on the video releases anymore. And it's like, ah, that's how that quality had dropped. And he died actually shortly after that. Yeah. Um, 22 yeah so um yes i actually know leon like not i don't know leon didn't know leon vitelli but i, I know about him yes sorry what were you going to say that was a huge digression i interrupted you no that was fine i just saw one of his uh stanley kubrick's interviews with a french uh magazine which is uh currently on peacock i don't know how it ended up at peacock they rotate through the streamers. So I think it was called Directed by Stanley Kubrick or Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures was done by Jan Harlan. Oh, okay. 
that was not that one. It wasn't that one. I don't know. I don't think I've seen this one. What was this one about? It was just an interview with a French interviewer. So he talks a lot about. He goes through all of his movies in a never before heard thing from 2018. So I'm gonna try and find the link for that and I'll post it. Cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll take. I'll take a look at it. It's only an hour. And, uh, too long. So that's good for you. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll check it out at some point <laughs> when I get time. All right. And uh, I like how you incorporate a few ideas into your YouTube videos, such as the HB Lovecraft's Eldritch Terriers, the Newcomers Box, <laughs> Rocco's Basilisks, and the Ruliads. I don't know. If you want to go off on tangent, it's a whole smorgasbord of of nerd <laughs> stuff, right? It's a, it's like it's a a, nor, a nerd cornucopia, right? No, yeah. it's a, it's a. I mean, I'm a huge H.P. Uh, Lovecraft fan, but uh, and I think that what made me gravitate towards focusing on cosmic horror Lovecraftian content <clears throat> is that the early AI video just connected with that kind of content, right? I think. You know, I think one of the things that might separate my work from a lot of other practitioners of uh, AI video is that, like, I try my best to use the AI technology and the weirdness of it and the uncanny valley to serve a particular type of content where, so it seems intentional. The hope is that you watch it and it doesn't feel like it was just randomly put together AI stuff that feels all very intentional. Um, whereas a lot of the stuff you see now is like people are trying to make these like Tarantino movies and Star Wars and and all this stuff that just doesn't work, right? You, you have these extremely stilted performances and the images are very static and they're very pretty, but they're just, it's not, in other words, I think the point is I'm trying to get, a, get to is that like what drove me towards the cosmic horror and Lovecraftian stuff is that the AI um, especially the earlier models, uh, just output stuff that was just like perfectly Lovecraftian, you know? Yeah. Um, you called your work singularity anxiety. Yeah. Uh, earlier on, that was a kind of, <clears throat> yeah, this like term that I came up with to describe, I guess, uh, some art. Like I thought that Bo Burnham's inside <laughs> was like a very, very much a singularity anxiety or part of this, like this genre of what I would call singularity anxiety, which is sort of the picking up on the fact that the future moves too fast to track it. And with that, there's a whole bunch of societal ramifications that comes along with that and instability. And I think that people are, I, I think catching up to this like instability, I think there's a very general sense of, uh, of fragmentation and hopelessness and inability to like build a future is <laughs> like, you know, that kind of, that whole kind of thing. And, and it seems to be moving towards some kind of yeah, point, right? Like the, I would call the singularity, the point by which the future is impossible to track even in principle, right? It's like, it's not even necessarily that human beings ever tracked the future. Well, we never really did. It's just that feeling that we could um, is actually one of the things that um, helped us become coherent civilizations. Um, but that's something that we seem to be like losing track of. And if you do reach this kind of point by which your models of the future are just negated <laughs> every second, you know, yeah, I, there's a lot of anxiousness about, about, about that where every day it seems that you're kind of circling the drain to that point yes um it's there's definitely it seemed like in the past the future at least in the near future was going to seem pretty close to the present and now it seems like the future is definitely not going to seem similar to the present <laughs> yeah it, it, exactly it's or it's, it's more than that right it's like it, you know when you think about even the last few decades like you have this idea of like what the, say the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s were. And as you kind of move closer past the year 2000, things do kind of just like blur, right? It just seems that uh, 
yeah, there's just no, it's harder to find like a kind of conceptual footing in where you're at at any particular moment. It feels like, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. It's like, it's that it's the feeling is something that I try to kind of put into my work, <laughs> but I think Bo Burnham's, uh, insight is actually, you know, if, if you want a very kind of distilled feeling of that, that's a very good distillation. I think of that feeling. Is that Bo B O or B Bo B A U? B O his first name Burnham B U R N H A M. He's a comedian. He had a show on Netflix. He's a brilliant comedian, by the way. Um, but uh, he had a show on Netflix called Inside, um, which is excellent. And if you haven't seen that, I would definitely highly recommend that. Okay, I must have missed that reference in your tweet. <laughs> so I'll check it out. Oh, um, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like there's two ways that the future can go, which is like the Mad Max version or the uh, technological utopia, dystopia, which are everything is could be like idiocracy or could be like minority report or which one. I, I feel we already are at idiocracy, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're nearing minority report says, but yeah. It's, well, that's the thing about this singularity anxiety thing is it's kind of like, take your pick. It kind of can feel like any of them, right? It's sort of a, <laughs> like a, a, you know, it can it can go any of these directions and it doesn't necessarily feel that it is going. Like that's one, I remember like, you know, Trey Parker, Matt Stone of South Park, they were saying that, you know, uh, satire is becoming less and less possible. Um, and one of the, you know, things you need for a satire, you need a view of society and where it's headed. And, um, and that's, if you don't have that, if it seems like it's just these, like, you know, these sands that you could just, that can move all the time, then it's hard to even make a satire, <laughs> like take your pick. Well, yeah, I, I think the dystopia satire is going to be prevalent for a while because it's a definite attractor and a definite energy well moved people will get stuck in that way of being. It's funny too, that um, people's default these days is uh, dystopian. Like everybody, everybody's become a Gen Xer now. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's, if you ask anyone, not, well, not literally anyone, but most people like, do they have a more utopian or dystopian view of the future? It seems at least in my experience, maybe this is just anecdotal, but it, it does seem that, you know, like I work at a bookstore and in the teen bookstore section, it's like every <laughs> teen science fiction novel is dystopian, like every single one, right? Like there's no, there's nothing positive <laughs> at all. Yeah. Well, the Hunger Games took over that and then a bunch of spinoffs like the, whatever that Maze Runner was. Yeah, there's a lot of them. I mean, I don't know them very well. I saw the um, Hunger Games movies. I never read the books, but... uh I yeah, Maze Runner. There's a, there's a lot of them. I can't remember them now, but there's there's a yeah, and all the ones that were made into movies, which bubble up into the pop culture. Yeah, sort of, I think the movies and music have sort of been co-opted by video games and TikTok on oh, YouTube. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so, video, video games is a much bigger industry than Hollywood. It's like not even close. Yeah, and there's just not a lot of non non-video gamer content which can bring people into video games it's sort of like you get sucked into it and you have your own little niche there mm -hmm. so i hope you can carve out your own little niche in the ai filmmaking especially on youtube and i want to link to your patreon and other things that you have so people can oh, support i appreciate that you know I, I mean i'd love to be doing this thing full time i would like to shout out my friend um a's uh, alter is what he's going by now, which is, uh, he's, the, the, did you see that capital of conformity short? Uh, don't think so. Oh, wow. Okay. He's, I think like of, I know the best of the sort of AI filmmakers out there. So I would definitely check him out. A's alter, A-Z-E-A-L-T-E-R. Um, he does AI videos also. I actually came across him because he commented um, on one of my videos, it was called carnival nightmare. And he, he said that he, you know, he said nice things about it. 
And then I visited his page and he had this video called Observers, which I was very impressed with because I think that he, like me, was leveraging the weirdness of AI video um, and, you know, tailoring tailoring it to weird content, right? Um, and he did it really, really well with that. And then later he did this one capital of conformity and it blew up actually, it went viral. Um, and it was, I was very impressed by that one. And then he just did a new one. That's a sequel to capital of conformity. And it's part of a series that's actually connected to that. And, uh, they're extremely good. So yeah, I would I definitely recommend going to A's alters YouTube and subscribing to that channel. If you want to see the best of AI video art, I think he's, uh, and I, I haven't seen anyone better. Yeah, I definitely saw him when you mentioned him, and I didn't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> His work is excellent. A very young guy too, but he's ex extremely talented, and uh, and he's I think he's doing the best work in whatever this little early genre is of AI video making or whatever you want to call it. Yes, I'm trying to get you to be posted by somebody bigger than me, and then just blows up somehow. <laughs> it be, it would be nice but uh you know I, I do accept also that the stuff that i make is uh you know kind of maybe too strange for mainstream tastes <laughs> perhaps but yeah you can't predict viral, viral stuff so otherwise no. it wouldn't be viral it would just be a coordinated like bot attack <laughs> pretty much exactly yeah. it would That's just be all... a race race to the bottom and it would yeah it's just the, the moloch uh race to the yeah. bottom it's just they just throw a ton of stuff at the wall and see what sticks right yes and that's why it's all so average is because it's directed at the mid the midwits <laughs> yes the midwits right <laughs> so i like the one video that you appeared in you pulled like a hitchcock twilight zone thing where you're like the host oh like, yeah i'm gonna be doing that more i think uh yeah you should do that more like um yeah uh the War of the Worlds guy. Oh, I forgot his name. But, uh, yeah, would you mean H.G. Wells or do you mean Orson Wells, the Orson, one that? One of those Wells. Because <laughs> Orson Wells did the broadcast later on, um, but H.G. Wells wrote it. Right. I just realized that they both have the similar name. Yeah, it's funny, right? <laughs> not related though. Yes, obviously not. But yeah, he he became his own entity after, you know. It became super well. Orson Welles' story is actually very sad because he went from directing, you know, the greatest movie of all time to, you know, making wine commercials and like <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's actually a very sad story. Um, what he went through, he kind of a victim of extremely early success. Um, but uh, yeah, he just pissed, he pissed off the wrong person and he got destroyed, sort of. Yeah, I mean, he. Yeah, he definitely, the powers that be at Hollywood, he did not get along with them. <laughs> you know. Well, you mean his first movie about the... Oh, oh yeah, that, yes. Um, what's his name? Uh, the guy that did the newspapers back then. Oh, God, I'm forgetting. Um, Rudolph. Uh, God, what's his name? Um, William Randolph Hearst. Yes, well, not Rudolph. William <laughs> Randolph Hearst, that's right. Yes, exactly. Close enough to, to autocomplete the function. <laughs> yes, that was my... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my brain hey, so, so i'm not an expert on the loss function even though i should be you want to explain what that means to well in in the in in the context of uh in the context of like ai art this is the or i'm sorry art um in the way like yosha bach put it right is the idea that you're not you're not like you're not optimizing for minimizing error in creating something for a specified purpose. It's more of like, so for example, like if you're a carpenter, um, like, you know, you will make say like a table or something and that has a purpose, right? And the aesthetics <clears throat> are not really the point. It's like to serve some kind of means or to serve some kind of end for decoration or ornamentation or status or something like that. And like you're minimizing, um, you're minim minimizing error. The better you get at achieving those ends, whereas with like the artist, you 
fall in love with the aesthetics themselves. In other words, you get lost in the creation and it's like the creation of the artifact is <laughs> what's uh, what's important, right? So yes. that's what it means by getting falling in love with the shape of the loss function. You're not really falling in love with like these mathematical um, like uh, calculations. What he meant by that is like you're just falling in love with the kind of like aesthetics and the artifacts themselves, basically. So I'm not by no means an expert in machine learning or any of that either. I have a very rudimentary understanding of a lot of this. And uh, the way it progresses too these days, it's just like really hard to keep up because um, there's so much coming out. So. Yeah. I wanted to use that as a transition to talk about how your art doesn't have like a specific conclusion. It doesn't like come down on the side of the Rocco's basilisk is bad and Gaia is good and you have different characters that sort of pop up like Irina Cold and the Christmas elf that you had or Indrid Indrid Cold oh sorry sorry I wrote that wrong no, no yeah you want to talk about any of these characters in your viewpoint as opposed to your character's viewpoint uh, sure I mean I can kind of Indrid Cold that comes from Forget the guy's first name. Something Darren Berger, who it, it's early UFO lore, and it comes from uh, a story that this uh, this guy, something Darren Berger, told to journalists in the 1950s, I believe, and it became sort of the basis of the Mothman prophecies. I don't know. Did you ever see that movie with Richard Gere, The Mothman Prophecies? I've forgotten it. <laughs> Indrid Cold is actually like a character in that. Um, so he's actually like, it's, there's an urban legend kind of thing. Uh, he's a, you know, he inspired this, the smiling man. I've seen, this. I'm sure you've seen that from like creepy pasta. Yes. I think Indrid Cold is one of the inspirations for that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, of like this smiling extraterrestrial that can communicate you with you telepathically and, and all this. But it's just sort of a, it's a, sort of a creepy entity. Um, and, um, but I, I'm sorry, what was the question that like, what, how did you want me to talk about these entities? Well, you, you said, um, from my perspective rather than some, something you're else. not, you're not proselytizing or preaching any specific thing. You sort of seem to have these characters that have expressed different viewpoints and different anxieties. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Like the sort of incomprehensible weirdness of the work is supposed to reflect <laughs> the sort of incomprehensible weirdness of the world. Right. Um, I, it, 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 I'll, I'll get, you know, it's very interesting actually, is that um, let's backtrack a second. Now this all kind of ties in together, I guess. I early on had this idea about like, what if you could have some kind of AI that was capable of some kind of backwards causation. Right. And I guess one way to look at that, like how that might be possible. And by the way, I don't know how possible it actually is. And a lot of people that are much more educated in physics will tell me that it's, you know, not possible at all. As I understand it though, in, in physics, uh, you can reverse the arrow of time in the entropic direction or the other way around and the physical equations work out. Right. I think it's, okay. And then the question becomes though, like, is an observer possible in the other direction um, or in directions that are even adjacent to that, right? Um, and it, that's where this like Ruliad notion comes in, right? Which is this sort of the entangled limit of all possible, com all possible computations. And as we're sort of observers embedded in that, and then I think, you know, Stephen Wolfram calls another space within our space, which within the larger rural space, which he calls branchial space, which is sort of another way of describing the evolution of the, the wave function. Um, that like, is it possible that you can have within the Ruliad, like, you know, you can have entities that can sort of pull people in from what one observer would see as um, the, their future, right? 
Um, And it's funny because I wasn't even thinking about Roko's Basilisk. It wasn't until later that I thought more deeply about Roko's Basilisk and how, oh, Roko's Basilisk actually is that entity because it's, you know, punishing you and threatening you from the future. But it seems to be, you know, there's a logical contradiction because like the thing doesn't exist. So how can it threaten and coerce you if it doesn't exist already? And so it would have to be capable of some kind of, excuse me, it would have to be capable of, uh, at least from what our vantage point would seem to be retro causation. So from there, you have like, you know, th- these sorts of ideas of these entities like Indrid Cold and and all that, that, they, uh, that he's actually kind of operating um, from a different direction in time. And his visit to like Darren Berger is actually in his future you know yes um, so yeah i mean that was a very convoluted <laughs> the whole thing is very bizarre as you said they don't really uh it's purposeful that it's not packaged up in a neat package because uh you know i'm kind of ex- i'm kind of exploring circling the drain to the singularity myself and kind of just intuitively um trying to reflect these things in art i guess mm-hmm. Yes, go ahead. Oh, go, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. As a Gen Xer myself, I uh, definitely think the dystopia is more probable, but I'm definitely uh, looking forward to all the good things that can happen from utopian visions as well. Yeah, it, it's it's funny because um, even though I'm a millennial, uh, most of my friends have been Gen Xers, <laughs> and I've always been. I've always had a much more gen xer oriented mind um the millennial mind i guess and it's kind of funny that i've always kind of gravitated towards that and i it is it is funny how there's a very just like very dark i you know my friend another one of my friends who's a millennial he said something very interesting to me which was he said i what kind of separates uh, us from like the gen xers though and this is of course this is all very generalized i'm not trying to overgeneralize it's just you know, it's just a kind of overview of this this feeling, which is that like sometimes Gen Xers are almost unreasonable in their pessimism. <laughs> or like uh it's almost become dogmatic in some way with a lot of Gen Xers, it seems, at least in my experience. Again, this is just anecdotal. It's like I think with me, I agree I end up agreeing with them often about these very kind of dystopian ideas or feelings. But it's sometimes my reasoning for getting to why I think it is is, is different than them, and I and I also don't feel the kind of inevitability that a lot of them seem to have. And again, this is just anecdotal. I I, I wouldn't presume to speak for you or all Gen Xers. Yeah. Well, I think the Matrix was a documentary when they and it revealed itself when it said that 1999 was the peak of human. So, I- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's, that's something that I definitely connect with Gen Xers with is this like very um, almost idyllic view of uh, the 1990s. Um, It's kind of funny though, because like, you know, the Gen Xers would say, or like the Gen Xers I talked to, like they were into like Terminator 2 when I was into Jurassic Park, right? Like that was, there's, there was a different kind of, you know, and they were listening to Nirvana and I was watching Ninja Turtles, right? So it's like, but but we both have this like view of the '90s as this very like amazing time, and yeah, 1999 peak of human civilization seems about right. Well, that's because everything since then, from the iPhone to onwards, has just been consolidating towards uh, building better machines. <laughs> yeah, and just you know, hacking our dopamine system, and uh, <laughs> just- yeah. We were promised decentralization and we got even more, somehow even more centralization. Isn't that funny how that works, right? Even in like cryptocurrency, it's uh, the <laughs> it's just more and more, uh, you know, more and more centralization, more and more middlemen. And then even the people that, you know, are the big uh, Bitcoin people, they actually end up, you know, saying rah, rah, let's let BlackRock get in and all these institutions get in because that'll pump up the price. And so like everyone you know, becomes part of the Borg mind for centralization in the end, which is really ironic and funny. 
Yeah, Bitcoin has sort of been captured at this point, and that's the only way, that's the best way that it works for the holders. But, you know, mm-hmm. that's a whole other tangent that I don't want to go down. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I have a bit of a pass with the crypto. I had a, a fake three year retirement because I did decent in crypto. I just had like $5,000, and I said, Oh, fuck it. Let's let's go all in. And, you know, I was able to not work for three years. I, sh- I should have been smart and I should have put him, put all my winnings into mutual funds and gone back to work. But uh, I just hated work so much. I just didn't want to go back. <laughs> so I had a fake three year retirement thanks to crypto. So, yes. Well, it's better to uh, work to live than live to work. People, no, not that you can't find a lot of meaning in your work because people seem to have different mean, definitions of work. So the, mm-hmm. if you have a regular job, work does not mean something good. But if you have like, if you're like a talking head on TV and you're doing interesting things all day, work means something different to you. So I definitely think that your work is, your art is closer to uh, play than it is to, you know, working a nine to five job. Oh yeah. I mean, if I could get enough patrons or enough add revenue money from YouTube or whatever to not work. <laughs> yeah, that then I would live to work, right? In that case. Yes. So I just wanted to address that again. Yes. Yes, for sure. So you definitely have to see Annihilation. You're going to love that movie. <laughs> I know you've been telling me you got to see Annihilation over private message. <laughs> just like this. Yeah. I just got, I have so little time. This is yeah, this is my only free day actually coming up up until the end of uh, this month. Yeah. So. Yeah. Did you remember the uh, the preview for Annihilation where they had the music? God, I barely. Is that? It? I mean, is is Natalie Portman in it? In five years ago, so I just you were just you turned one of your videos into like a binaural beats. You had mm-hmm. a binaural section in the audio, so I thought that was really clever the way that you did that. Oh yeah, I mean that was all based on that whole uh, gateway experience thing, yeah. which is uh, that the CIA studied and that whole thing used by neural beats to supposedly get you out of body and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's funny. Do you know? Have you ever heard of a um, researcher named uh, Stephen Leberge? He was the one that actually empirically proved that lucid dreaming happens. Oh, okay. Um, he worked at, uh, I mean, it's, which university was he at? I want to say Stanford, I believe. Um, okay. it was, he had a very clever way of figuring it out, which was he had figured out that in rapid eye movement um, during um, dreaming, where you're looking, it actually coincides with where you're looking in the dream world. Um, so if you're looking up, like while your rapid eye movement's going up, it actually coincides with you kind of looking up in the dream. Um, so he would teach people like a code with eye movements, which would be like, you know, left, left, down, down, right, right, up, up, like very improbable uh, codes to, that would then translate to something like I am dreaming now. So they'd be, they'd be taught to lucid dream and then they would actually be able to speak to him from the dream with eye movements. Um, yeah. But it's kind of funny because like early on, I'd, I'd read one of his books and I practiced lucid dreaming. And, and it's funny because it, it inoculated me against a lot of these ideas about going out of body because, uh, you know, like you, you'll learn pretty quickly that you're not actually going out of body, that you're experiencing um, like a simulation um, being uh, generated by your mind and you're not actually like leaving your physical body. Um, I know that some people, including Craig, <laughs> would disagree with me on this, but uh, Stephen LeBurge actually set up some pretty interesting experiments where he would put like an object in another room and the person would go out of body um, once they'd become lucid and they could never predict what the object was ever. Um, they would see something and the rooms would look very much like what they fell asleep in, but it never was the actual thing. I know there have been like, contradictory reports to that those experiments like in i think patients on their like that you know are on a hospital table that they go out of body and they end up seeing signs around the room that you couldn't see from the vantage point unless you were like 
up there, like near the ceiling. So I know there's contradictory data in that, but in my experience with out-of-body experiences, um, I don't actually think I've left my body. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, maybe like a subliminal self-hypnosis thing where you're convincing yourself that you've done it. Well, it feels like you have. <laughs> like I can say from experience, like, it definitely feels like you've left your body. Anyway, point is, like I think I was going to get at, we were talking about binaural beats, sorry. Like uh, that, that. All the same connection. Well, le yeah, led to this whole tangent. And sorry, by the way, if I ever go off on these uh, crazy tangents and you need to reel me back, just interrupt me at any time. But um, yeah, the binaural beats thing, I wanted to create something very, for that YouTube video, like a very experiential thing. I think that, uh, um, you know, I, I break the, the fourth wall a lot with my work. And um, I some people have given me feedback that my work actually like genuinely spooks them. And some people will even say to me, just recently, like on Reddit, um, someone said, like, <laughs> your work is too dangerous. Like if someone has a like psychosis or something, this might, you know, really trigger them. And it's like, that's why one of the reasons why I put disclaimers at the beginning of some of my videos now. Yeah, I saw that. I know that uh, a lot of David Lynch's work has that effect on some people. They just can't watch it or experience it because it's, it's like a subconscious and it's too unple unpleasant. Mm. David Lynch is actually uh, probably my my favorite filmmaker, actually. So I, I'm a huge David Lynch fan. So what do you think of his uh, latest? Uh, his latest. Um, sorry, you, you cut out. What was that? His latest works? Right. Well, I mean, what do you mean? Because he does so many different things. Are you talking about Twin Peaks The Return, that one? Yes, his latest in public, more popular stuff. Gotcha. Okay, so... Um, because the last movie he made was 2006 Inland Empire, which I, I loved, but uh, I really loved Twin Peaks Return. It's like, I think it's some of the best work he's ever done. Did you uh, watch all the episodes? Yes. Ah, so what did you think? I did not like it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> did you like the old uh, Twin Peaks, the first two seasons? Yeah. and it, Interesting. Okay. It dropped off after he left and became a, the other, the secondary character that took over right before it ended and came back for the finale yeah like i i think the second season suffered when when he left for sure it seemed to kind of lose the plot um yeah because yeah. i definitely like the uh seventh episode where he had the nuclear bomb and it was in black and white and then there was oh like, yeah that's the yeah that's my favorite episode <laughs> of yeah. the, 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 that was like the peak episode that was like the only episode that i enjoyed at all <laughs> Okay. Glad we can disagree on something. <laughs> I, I'm glad. I mean, did you, did you think it just was like, what, too pretentious or it just was uh, over long or like what were the, your particular criticisms? I felt like it wasn't going anywhere and he kind of just wrapped it up in like this weird Ouroboros where it's a snake uh -huh. in his tail and it both gave you too much closure and not no closure whatsoever and it felt like a weird spinoff. Yeah, I mean the last episode definitely is is uh it feels like that it was that it was incomplete for sure, um, but at the same time, like you said, it also had a feeling of completeness as well. So it is a weird ambivalence there. Um, I sort of treated it like satire, <laughs> sort of. He's kind of like not satire insulting the audience, but kind of like playing with the expectations. He's like. You think you're gonna get one thing, and I'm just gonna totally go off and just do my own thing because that's what you want from me. <laughs> you'll either enjoy it and you'll come with me, or you won't enjoy it and you'll just reject it completely. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I found it very funny and creepy, and I, I love the very dreamlike feeling of the whole thing. Um, yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed certain parts of it a lot. But I really loved Evil Cooper. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. Uh, I don't know. I, I actually really enjoyed um, Twin Peaks, but uh, the third season, I, I loved the movie too. And a lot of people really hated the the movie when it came out. I remember. Um, yeah, definitely a lot more people are liking the Twin Peaks movie now than yeah. Like, yep, and that's that happens with a lot of David Lynch's work that it's not liked at first, yeah. and then over time, it, you know, people uh, gravitate towards it. So. Yeah, I think uh, Firewalk with Me and Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 all came out in the same year, pretty close to each other. Pretty close. I think <laughs> Jurassic Park was definitely 93. 
okay. I remember. It's funny. I always remember that because it was, uh, I was five years old and um, I'd actually uh, been diagnosed with a rare kidney cancer called Wilms tumor. Um, and I didn't know at the time, they, you know, my parents didn't tell me, but like, uh, I was like just one day when I was diagnosed with it, you know, my dad thought like, well, my son may die. So he just took me to Toys R Us and like said, Hey, like, here's a shopping cart. You can put whatever you want in there. And then in one go, I got the entire, uh, Jurassic Park action figure line. <laughs> and so, um, like 90, 1993, it was, it was like a great year for that, you know? <laughs> Yeah. It, was, it was nice being unaware that I had uh, something that could kill me, you know. <laughs> I yeah. just got a lot of free cool stuff. So, but, uh, and then you found out later. It's like, well, I mean, I had to still go to the hospital, and that was unpleasant. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I still had to have the surgery, right? But I was not told what was really going on. But, right. but I always remember that year for sure. But yeah, 1993. That's yeah, that's when it came out. For me, Jurassic Park was this like, you know, religious experience. <laughs> it was. You know, I've never been properly diagnosed, but almost certainly, you know, Asperger's syndrome. That's <laughs> a very uh, major obsession of mine that like it was it was a massive obsession for sure. Yeah. That's just where you loved Jurassic Park uh, 30 years ago. And uh, they still don't know how to do good special effects during the daylight, so. <laughs> well, it's, you know, what's interesting is that um, a lot of the generative AI stuff, because my brother actually is like a huge hater of modern uh, CGI. He said something that was interesting was he said that like a lot of the AI generated videos look better than CGI. And I said, well, you know, they are CGI. And, and what it, something clicked for me, which was just like with say Jurassic Park or, um, Starship Troopers and those like early 1990s uh, movies with CGI where the CGI actually seems better than modern CGI in a yeah. lot of ways, even though it's less dynamic and fluid um, and it's less sort of technically correct if, with a trained eye. Um, one of the things that I think helps it is that you, the CGI is trying to emulate uh, physical objects, right? Because they would have animatronics and real sets and real lighting and so on and so forth. And they would have to match the CGI to those things. Whereas now, you know, it's like everything's, you just do it on a green screen. Plus back then, I think there was more pride and craftsmanship in trying to um, match the reality where there's kind of less of that now. A lot of the times as CGI artists are just sort of outsourced to, you know, some, place in a third world country where they just, you know, hire some people to quickly and cheaply put together the CGI for them. They don't really care. <laughs> um, but, uh, the C but with the AI stuff, right? Like, uh, the AI models are trained on all imagery and all video and so on and so forth to where, um, it, like you get rid of that problem. You just kind of prompt it to give you something photorealistic and it'll, you know, even upon, even though like, again, upon close inspection, it's not, as good as what a CGI artist would do, I think it can pick up on certain nuances that a lot of like um, humans just don't pick up on because you're not like the human mind is not picking up on a lot of those sort of nuances and emulating a physical reality. Yeah, I think there's a some vagueness and fuzziness around some of it that just makes it actually more subconscious and subliminal. You feel like you're watching a you don't, it's not too crisp, so you're not concentrating on the details, is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned that because, like, I was just on Reddit at the AI video uh, subreddit, and someone had posted something that was almost like a Marines recruitment video um, simulation, and it was all done with runway. And what's funny is the first time I watched it, I thought it was a real like army recruitment ad. <laughs> and yeah. then, then when I watched it the second time, I like, you see all the AI artifacts, but it's, it is funny, right? That like it immediately though, if you're not really looking at it with, with a lot of scrutiny, um, it can trick you into thinking it's, it's the real deal. Yeah. The vagueness is your ally. <laughs> exactly. Like the vagueness in some weird way actually helps on like, a. 
of just a sort of casual viewing if you're not really paying attention it's the you're right the vagueness actually kind of covers up for it which is which is strange whereas like the more you know polished cgi sometimes seems more fake <laughs> it's very interesting yeah all right i don't know how much time you have left i can uh, I'm I'm pretty good. I'm good on time. Um, another I can go another hour or so. But if you're wanting to wrap this up, either way. Okay, we'll just keep going. Cool. Um, yeah. Have you thought about like doing a David Lynch parody or something bigger to try and go viral? Or I'm so bad at this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I just like I just feel gross doing stuff like that. But. Uh... I don't know. Like at the same time, I, I have certain responsibilities now that make me uh, less anti-marketing <laughs> or, yeah. or, or less, you know, anti-capitalist or whatever you want to call it to where uh, I'm, I'm more happy to, you know, <laughs> to go with that. But I don't know. It, it, it's one of those things though, where I don't know, like what, what would you recommend? For example, like a David Lynch parody, like to, I don't know. Like you said earlier, you can't really predict going viral, right? It's a, uh, but uh, no, yeah. I would, I would just pick the most mainstream person you know, and then maybe do like a parody of that. How that goes? I, I can, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because like if, if I do start on a project like that, it'll inevitably evolve into like something else. It happens every time when I try to do something for clicks. It just never, and also it, sometimes it'll backfire on me, which was like, uh, cause you know, I'd often get this criticism with my work in general, which is like, it's too slow. Right. And then like I put the last video I put up was this like HP Lovecraft, uh, video about Al Hazred and like the first comment that popped up was it moves too fast. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I can't win, you know? So. Yeah. I like that one. That one flowed together really well, but I think the problem with it is like uh, it's, it, it probably isn't a problem for people that understand Arabic, like it flows fine. But I think that reading the subtitles, it probably, because it's so dense <laughs> that it probably is hard to look at the visuals and read the subtitles at the same time. I think that's probably uh, like an issue with that one. Well, that's like complaining about Shakespeare that you have to go back and rewatch it again. It should well, be watched. Well, thank you for saying that because, like, that's my <laughs> attitude too, right? Like, <laughs> like, like, yes, yeah, Shakespeare should be read and reread and read some more, but like, that's what that's where it derives its power from. But it's, uh, you know, I'm actually glad you say that because that's not a sentiment that you hear much these days, actually. Yeah, a lot of people are looking for that dopamine hit and they just want like a new different stimulus and then they mm -hmm. go back to a different one. Mm -hmm. There's a yeah. filmmaker friend yeah. that I have that I get into arguments with all the time about attention span, <laughs> like how, like, I'll sound like a grumpy Gen Xer about how our attention spans are being hollowed out and everything. And he'll be like, no, man, that's just the way it evolves. Like art evolves. And it's like, well, if it evolves into complete garbage, then I'm out. <laughs> you know? so, but uh, well, you're getting, that's the way the system works because you're getting what you're optimizing for, which is clicks. And they're they're optimizing for attention. They're not optimizing for attention span. Yeah, exactly. And that's another thing too. Like, that's really the AI things really helped me out because you know when I did those like early Franz Kafka adaptations and like I spent very a lot of money and a lot of time with very limited resources making these short films and you know YouTube doesn't care, right? YouTube doesn't matter. It doesn't. They don't care how much work you put into something. <laughs> it doesn't like to get clicks and views and all that. It's not about that. Um, it's about like, you know, consistently uploading and, um, triggering the, what did they call it? engagement and all this other nonsense. Um, and the AI thing at least makes it to where I can grow the channel because I can just put stuff out quicker, you know, like I can still have high quality content, but because it can come out quicker now, I actually have a shot at, uh, achieving some kind of following. Whereas before that was just like not in the cards for me at all. Yeah, and I like the way that some of them are grouped into playlists. Yeah, I, I want to actually fine tune the playlist a bit more, but um, yeah, I, I I think the the playlists help kind of, I guess, uh, string together 
the different videos that have a shared narrative in a way or a shared kind of theme. Yeah, you could uh, release things as works in progress if they if you just keep going. Do you do it all in one shot or do you do it by section? Um, do you mean uh, like the like the videos that are say like part one, part two, part three, like that kind of thing? You mean? Yeah, was that planned out that way or did? It... No, no. I what I'll do is well, I will. He's uh, fun. You know, it's funny. Um, speaking about like the workflow of these AI videos. Um, people sometimes ask me, you know, what's, what is your workflow? And it changes <laughs> constantly because technology is constantly changing. Like for example, even when it comes to prompting, um, like runway had an upgrade, uh, two upgrades ago to where some of my prompt tricks that I discovered no longer worked. Right. So then I had to like start over again. Mid journey six just came out and mid journey six. Now, um, you can't, uh, it, a lot of the different prompting tricks don't work for that. So you have to kind of relearn it again. Um, so with these videos, no, I do them one at a time, but sometimes I will have like an overarching sort of theme. So if like the ones that are called uh, the non-human intelligence messages, I, I renamed the videos a few times too. Originally they were messages of Indrid Cold or something like that. But um, those ones come from an like earlier video, which is called uh, very unpleasant dreams, which is kind of the last video I did before, um, before uh, the AI stuff. And there was like, there's this like rabbit character that has, that says he's like there. He has like six cryptic messages, and so like those videos each became the basis, or the, those messages became the basis of that series. So I knew that I would have like six videos, but I didn't do them all in one go. I did them separately. And do you write out the dialogue or do you do you use chat GPT? Like both. That? Both. Um, sometimes I write it completely myself. Uh, sometimes I will prompt chat GPT or Bard or Cl Claude or whatever. I use everything um, and take the best of everything I get. And some of it's just a hybrid. It's, just, it's, a, it's stuff I've written and stuff that the AI's written. Um, so it's, yeah, all of the above. Definitely try and get Stephen Wolfram's attention by just saying Ruliad over and over again. <laughs> It'd be very interesting to see what he thought um, about. about I, I mean, I would imagine he would just see it and think it was just incomprehensible weirdness, but it would be cool <laughs> if he saw it for sure. Yeah. This is one of his latest tweets was him trying to distinguish between cat pictures and birthday pictures and cats having birthday pictures. And <laughs> Well, Stephen Wolfram's really amazing. Um, I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. Um, have you seen or read Rick Rubin's latest book? I have not. Um, although uh, one of my friends is a huge fan of Rick Rubin. And I, like I said, I work at a bookstore. and I, I see it all the time. People ask for it all the time. So I know it's making a big impact. But uh, have you read it? No, I haven't. The way of being. So he talks about the difference between doing things for yourself and doing things for the market. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll be completely different, and sometimes there'll be this surprising overlap, and you mm -hmm. can predict which is which. So you might as well just do what you want and ignore the audience while you're working, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then let you know the audience take care of itself because. If uh, they resonate with you, they'll find it, the work. Well, that's a great message. And it's it's actually the message that I've always defaulted to. I used to get into arguments with my friend about like, like, you know, do you think about the audience when you make a movie? And I'm like, not really. It's like, well, I think about them all the time. And it's like, that's the whole point. You're trying to sort of get a reaction from the audience. And like the way I've always worked is I just kind of don't think about the audience. I just do what I like, right? Yeah. Um. And then it's, you know, I, I get into these dark periods where I think, oh, no, this is the wrong attitude. Like, I've, you know, I've got to be making movies for other people. And like, I should be thinking about marketing and I should be thinking about, you know, getting my name out there. And plus, I'm sick of being broke, you know, so it'd be nice to make some money from this finally. But, you know, then when I go that direction, it never works anyway. So, um, in, you know, either way, I'm poor. <laughs> I might as well do 
<laughs> I might as well do what I want and be poor, you know, and just hope one of my shit coins hits, you know. <laughs> but, um, but um, yeah, like I don't know. Uh, it, it, I, I definitely want to believe in that, which is just kind of do your own thing. But I, I'm more open to, I guess, like marketing and getting my name out there than I used to be. I used to just be like, just would never get myself out there, you know. Yeah. Unless you're Barry Sanders and your work speaks for itself, you kind of have to, <laughs> you kind of have to say something. Yeah. I mean, you have to, and it works too. You, it's amazing that it works where sometimes I'll post something on YouTube or whatever and say like, just, you know, kind of ask for money. <laughs> like, Hey, join my pay Patreon. Here's the benefits. Then sure enough, someone will sign up and it's like, wow, <laughs> it blows my mind actually. But uh, it's cool. I'm very thankful for the people that do that. Um, I got more patrons than I used to have a Patreon, but I got like very, like three people or something. And then it became defunct because it just took too long for me to put out content. But, uh, I've got a decent, uh, size. Uh, I think I got like 10 paid patrons now, something like that, 10 or 11 now, um, which is cool. Hopefully you'll get more. I but, hope so. It'd be nice. Yeah. I think the reason that trying to go mainstream doesn't work is because so many people are going mainstream, but you're it's actually more crowded than the uh the periphery and the independent route because that way you can find your niche and then you can find your your people who are don't have it who don't resonate with the mainstream because they're they're ones looking for something new and different yeah i mean there might be a problem with my work that it's just uh almost too obscure it's too like it's too <laughs> like you know that most people are not have not heard of the Ruliad or Rocco's Basilisk or Ingrid or Indrid Cold or like none of it. It just kind of, it's just so kind of in the periphery that that just, that may just be a, a problem with my work. And um, well, I bet you hang around with Joseph Box. Twitter. What was that? Sorry, Joseph, what was that? Joseph Box Twitter has they know about the Ruliad there, so yes, like that. That's I need like those people, but like again, some of those people also probably aren't into like cosmic horror, you know? And so like, like, like I said, like Stephen Wolfram may understand some of the concepts in my videos, but I don't know if it's like his thing aesthetically. And then there could be people where it's their thing aesthetically, but they're not interested in the concepts. And I, I got a bit of that. I did a poll once on my YouTube channel. I've got like 800 